Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. Welcome to another episode of Juanced. Before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, FM Player, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there's a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. Check it out when we, re- when we record or watch all our episodes on YouTube, Juance Podcast, as well as our website, juance.com. Also, make sure uh, you are following us on Instagram. We are at Juance and on Twitter at Juance Podcast for all the updates, episodes, links, all that kind of stuff. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Juance on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're getting your podcast daily doses. And of course, we'd love it if you leave us a nice review, five stars or whatever it is. Uh, some people have hinted that it might make a difference. So, dude, we had a little uh, week-long hiatus here from the show, which has never happened before. It's true. Uh, it's but never happened. But but frankly speaking, I think you were busy and I was busy and, and you were in Abu Dhabi and you were in Dubai and I moved. You did uh, move. Not to Abu Dhabi. Not to Abu Dhabi. Uh, we moved We moved to a, a bigger house. Uh, I won't bore the listeners with it. Uh, but just suffice Everyone to is invited to Benny's house. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wherever you are in the we've world. got tour groups coming back so it's just it's been a crazy a crazy week here uh of trying to combine uh everything and, every, and anything into into the same uh, window of time uh how was how was your trip dan trip was good um it was very much meant for dubai it was just meetings nonstop and, and nice dinners of course but uh, abu dhabi actually stopped and, and got to see some touring last time i was there Seth, were you in Abu Dhabi? No. I mean, a long time ago. long time ago. Not recently. So last time I was there, right when the Abraham Accords were announced, um, it was really, really hard to get into Abu Dhabi due to COVID. Right. It's still not easy, by the way. Um, They have really, really strict uh, border measures, uh, COVID. But I got in, um, did a little touring in the 50 degree Celsius heat. That's like 120 degrees. It's 120 degrees. That's absurd. It's not unabsurd. And, uh, yeah, it was great. Great trip. Got to meet a lot of people, home hospitality, learn every time, learn more about the culture. And it was interesting because it was right after the whole Gaza episode. That's uh, what we're calling it. That's what, that's what I'm going with. And, um, so I had a very interesting conversations. Um, yeah. Awesome. So we're here with Seth Fransman, dude. It's awesome to see you. What's up? Yeah. Good to be here. Kind of like a kind of celebrity, man. <laughs> Dan's gonna fanboy out a little bit. Nah, it's all good. But but it is cool when you get to meet someone who, dude, you you are. I, I've told you this before. You publish more articles than anyone I've ever met before. It's 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 really impressive. I try. I hope that it's quality, not just quantity. 
It is quality. Um, some of them are reporting and some of them are analytical and some of them are, you know, theories, but, uh, but it's certainly all quality. And just the fact that you can keep up that pace and consistency and eh, good for you, man. And I have a book coming out. And you have a book. What, you want to tell us about it? Well, uh, yeah. In two weeks, there will be a book coming out called Drone Wars. You can find it on uh, Amazon or Simon & Schuster or whatever website you like to use. And it covers the kind of history of drones, armed drones, military drones. It looks at uh, the Israeli pioneers, I think, that are interesting because back in the 1980s when they were using drones to go after Syrian air defense. And then it follows that story to the United States, the Predator Reaper drones, you know, the war on terror. And then it looks at, you know, what's the next stage? Because... Drones are, you know, an interesting machine, but, you know, are they to warfare what the invention of the tank was, or are they mm. to warfare what the invention of the cruise missile was? I mean, is it just a, is it just a tool that is in the kit, or is it something that in the next war uh, will fundamentally transform the way countries like China or whatever wage war in the sense that we'll see, you know, thousands of drones out there as opposed to, you know, what they call like surgical airstrikes or something. So is it? That's interesting. Is it? Is it? You made the analogy uh, tanks or cruise missiles. Is it, is it also kind of like uh, the invention of the bullet? Well, I think that's the or big the question, yeah, or the crossbow or something, right. I mean, or the stirrup, whatever. I mean, is it, right, is it a totally new thing that we will look back and say having unmanned vehicles, unmanned uh, airplanes, um, little quadcopters, I mean, all this unmanned, the idea of having everything be unmanned yeah. without people, uh, which looks a lot more like Terminator. And it does look like what we think of as, as warfare. So, and I think, look, with the recent Gaza conflict, I mean, you can see the degree to which Israel, you know, uses lots of surveillance and intelligence, most of which is not, uh, not public. But we know, of course, that Israel tries very hard to do precision airstrikes. We also know that Hamas built a massive underground metro tunnel system yeah. to avoid all that. How much of that underground system is partly the result of having drones flying around in circles all day watching you? I mean, sure. of course... An F-16 can't do that. You've right. got to have a guy in it driving it, right? It's going too fast. Uh, it's it's going got to land. Fast. It's got yes. to refuel. And do that. satellites can't always do that either. Right. Um, so how much of the creation of the metro is a response uh, to drones, uh, Israel's drone efforts? How much of what ISIS did, things like that? So I think that's, that's part of what the book hopefully tries to answer, or at least ask the reader to, to consider what comes next. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, and we'll definitely put the link um, up on the show notes so people can order it. Drone wars. I've, I've been following. Um, uh, you 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 have a dedicated Facebook page to it. Yes, and I've been following it a lot because I'm a big. Um, I'm really interested in in the evolution of military affairs. <clears throat> in my previous life as an officer and in in the, in the academic world, that's kind of what I focused on. Um, and uh, I'm always fascinated by. And, and it's always you know when that one invention, when that one development can change the face of warfare, like you were saying. Um, and that, that's a good question. Is it this? I mean, something that we don't always think about is, you know, look at how few people are killed in military conflicts these days. Yeah, it's almost none, despite what the media will tell you, which is that, like, huge numbers are being killed. Remember the Battle of the Somme, 50,000 people killed in the first day or two? Yeah. Uh, Gettysburg, um, D-Day, D-Day, that we, we just, that we just 5, commemorated 6, the, the anniversary of D-Day. Right. I mean, so... Not only were the number the, the number of uh, casualties, soldiers killed, is is um, something we couldn't even imagine today, in these conflicts, uh, in the the harvest of death, kind of, mm. and the numbers of civilians. I mean, some battles in, in history, most civilians were not involved at all, like Waterloo or something. I mean, or Gettysburg, there weren't that many civilians involved in the battle. Um, nowadays, of course, terrorists hide among civilians, so there's a big challenge of getting them out of the way. Yeah. 
But even in the Second World War or whatever, you look at the bombing of Coventry or Rotterdam or, or Dresden. I mean, you're talking huge numbers of people slaughtered. Uh, and most yeah, ten, ten, tens most, of millions. And I human mean. societies were totally used to that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. Unbelievable. So before before we keep going into this episode. All right, so check it out, everybody. Uh, Juwance is a listener-supported podcast. We rely on the generous support of listeners like you to make sure that we uh, keep the party going with great guests. Uh, so if you would like to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can check out our, our, our PayPal account. The details on Juwance.com. We don't want to be unappreciative it of helped. our one-time supporters. No, not, not, we're very appreciative of our one-time supporters, of course. Uh, and, and I think that they're helping us grow... To what now? 125 countries? We, we are with listeners in 125 countries, um, including, where, where did we just get? You got Burkina ben, Faso. Benin. We were going after the market of Benin, the huge uh, Juan's market. It, it is huge. Uh, but, Tog- no, but Togo is... We have Togo. We have Togo. We have one listener. Togo. No, that, that's, that's good. That's great. It is. And we recently got a listener in... According to uh, the statistics, Palestine, which which is not the West Bank or the settlements in Judea and Samaria or any of that, it is you know I, th- I think because it, it looks at the uh, cell phone networks or whatever it is. So that it's was probably Itamar Ben Gvir. You think so, <laughs> <laughs> Itamar? What's up, man? <laughs> no, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we'd be glad if you joined us, uh, one time supporter or as an ongoing uh, contributor, which would be even better. Even if uh, consider donating even dollar two dollars an episode. Help keep this show going. And if uh, you'd like to do a live dedicated podcast, uh, check out the Juwanced Live feature. we got a couple of really good ones coming up this summer um, for your organization, your community, whatever it is. Sponsor the event. And, uh, yeah. Absolutely. So what do we got today? We said we got Seth Fransman, the superstar. You want to introduce him? I would be happy to introduce Seth. So Seth Ransman, who's sitting across from me, is a Middle East affairs analyst based in Jerusalem. He's the author of After ISIS, America, Israel, and the Struggle for the Middle East, and Drone Wars, his new book coming out, Pioneers, Artificial Intelligence, Killing Machines, and the Battle for the Future. I'm going to buy it, and we encourage everyone to buy a copy. Thank you. He's also the executive director of the Middle East Center for Reporting and Analysis. He runs the Israel Gulf Report, which follows developments between Israel and the Gulf countries. He's reported from and conducted research in Iraq, Turkey, Jordan, Egypt, Israel, and the UAE. And I'm sure that's just a partial list. Can't go back, can't go back to Turkey, though, no. <laughs> no? <laughs> you first Don't saw it I, I write negative articles. Oh, no. That's true. You're critical. You've been blacklisted by Erdogan. Uh, maybe. I would be wary to go back. You, you don't want to follow in the footsteps of Khashoggi. Let's just put it that way. Uh, he's also a former lecturer, lecturer at Al-Quds University on U.S. foreign policy. He has a Ph.D. from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He was born in Maine, which is awesome, uh, and received his B.A. from the University of Arizona. He writes in Middle East Affairs for the Jerusalem Post and contributes to Defense News and other publications and media and if you want an amazing, uh, filter-free understanding of what's going on, uh, really, I, I, I suggest that you follow him on Facebook. Uh, or Twitter. Uh, on yeah. Twitter. Um, there's, a, there's a great analysis and understanding of a lot of things that are going on, whether it's in the international arena, whether it's Israeli politics, whether it's uh, wokeism in the United States, in many, in many cases. Uh, the peace industry, as, you, as you've called it, uh, I think, uh, and 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 we'll try to get into a lot of these topics today. Yeah, you definitely leave uh, no holds barred. And no, there's things I don't cover. Okay, <laughs> no, but I mean, I have to say, I I do I do um, I have an uh, eclectic mind. I like to cover lots of things. So I, I mean, I, I'm very interested. For instance, now in this, you know, we we've been following the COVID, you know, the yeah. the 
the lab league or whatever it is. I mean, it's very interesting. I started on my on my Seth Francman blog when the COVID started. You know, just posting interesting articles, and I think that um, you know these things all intersect. COVID, the COVID issue, I think, intersects with national security and things like that. I mean, yeah. I'm not a scientist or epidemiologist. I think it's interesting to see. What does it mean for media? I'm interested in how media and politics and mm. national security, you know, all these things come together. So like I'm, not in, I'm not an expert in, in cyber warfare at all, but I think it's interesting the number of cyber attacks we're now seeing, for instance. So I think it's good to try to, to blend these things together. Absolutely. If, if you can make a synthesis of it, yes. which, is, which is, I think, at least for me also, I, th- I think this is what you do. This is what we're interested always in is where do these things come together, right? Where, where are these meeting points between all these various things? Oh, you mentioned cyber. I mean, we're talking about warfare that's really not killing a lot of people now. I mean, that's another aspect of it is, is it's, it's like we found ways to fight war. And again, despite what mass media says, despite what Western public opinion says, you know, you like Steven Pinker, fewer people are dying from violent deaths than ever before in human history. That seems Which is to, not to say that there aren't, you know, atrocities. Of course there are. There are a lot of atrocities, and we know a lot more about them. I mean, the fact that we're even finding out now, hundreds of years later, is about the, um, the, the killing of indigenous children in Canada, for instance. They found these mass graves of 200 kids at these church schools or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of things we're only finding out now about what happened in the past. Mm. Um, so, yeah, in the past, I think we only know about the worst atrocities. Right. There's all sorts of genocides we just don't know about. Let, let, me, let me ask you something about that, because, because you, you mentioned it. it it's like people like to say, uh, you know, people all, all people know about the Nazis, uh, and 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 sometimes they look at the Nazis like it's some sort of an aberration. Yeah, yet, I wrote about that. Yeah. yeah, and you wrote about this, but but yet you know these things happen in in Canada, which are you know the Canadians are perceived like the Canadians are committing atrocities. That's that's like are they you know making lobster rolls the wrong way? Like it's it doesn't seem to be, but but here it is, and it, and it, and you see it all over Western Europe. Uh, and you see it in cultures, you know, near, near and far. Is it something that is, I mean, we, of course we see it as an atrocity, but is it, is it, is it rare? Well, I think that, I mean, look, I think it's interesting the way in which we learn about the, the Holocaust and the Nazis. I mean, obviously as a, as Jews or whatever, of course it is rare for us. I mean, we were not, uh, Jews were suppressed for long, long, long periods of history, but we're not generally genocided and put in gas chambers. Uh, so, no, I mean, the Holocaust is, is unique in many ways. But I think the tendency of, in Holocaust education to talk about the, the Nazis, it's like this other thing, like there's the, the bottle over here, as if it's not part of a whole series of bottles. Like, and, and I know that, for instance, when you say, well, well, you mean the Germans. It's like, no, 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 don't say Germans, because that, 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 that stigmatizes all of them. It's like, well, they're, they're the ones that, that started it, right? I mean, they had all these collaborators, yes, um, but this idea that the Nazis are this this penultimate evil, and then of course we see how that what happens with that. Everything gets compared to them uh, in a way that's often then uh, degrading what happened in the Holocaust by saying like, "Oh, I saw this like one human rights violation. That's like the, what the Nazis did." Well, well, no, it's not. But it's because you've made them into this mythical evil. So therefore, everything that's bad just becomes. Well, we've bad. seen we've seen that you know almost in a ubiquitous way, manner in the past several years throughout. Throughout the Trump administration, it was just there. You know, you'd yeah. see many comparisons to right, and what's going on now. Is 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 the start of how it begins? Or I think that's why it's better. It's better to see the the the, the genocide of the Holocaust um, as yes yeah, as, as part of a whole series of things. I think the fact. I mean, I think the fact that we 
basic things we take for granted, um, like, for instance, that children are not disappeared by a school system and buried in an unmarked grave, as they were, in fact, uh, in apparently, you know, at all these types of indigenous schools, schools for Indian kids um, or aboriginals in many Western countries, kids were taken and, and just buried in unmarked graves. And you say to yourself, wait, well, that reminds me of what was done to Jews um, in Eastern Europe when the Einsatzgruppen just gunned people. And that reminds me of Sinjar, what was done to the Yazidis, when people are just disappeared. And um, so I think then we need to understand that, wait... We have, we have a whole series of, 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 um, of these atrocities, many of them in the West and other, and other civilizations as well, like, like ISIS, Islamist uh, extremism. And then we can, I think, better understand it, and then we don't have to see the Nazis as, the, as just a penultimate evil, this, this thing that everyone compares everything to. We, we can understand it better where it, where it came from, and then maybe we can, we can fight against it, I think, better if it's not just... Let's say a cliche or, or an object. I think, mm. and, and then we can understand that. Yeah, it was average people that made this up. And, and why did some why did some people in Europe collaborate? You know, for instance, when I read about the Holocaust or learned about it, we generally did not talk about Western countries' collaborations. Uh, the sheer numbers of people that joined the SS in Belgium and Netherlands in countries that we considered like friendly and nice. We talk about you know uh, what happened in Poland or, or Ukraine, uh, you know, Eastern Europe mostly. We don't. We don't ad- want to admit the fact that there was large numbers of collaborators. Yeah, France, the Vichy regime. Right. And lots of that is never fully talked about or explained how it was. Because we talk about, like, well, how did the Germans turn their neighbors? But, the, but we, don't, we don't want to talk about, wait, no, wait, across Europe this happened. There were some countries that resisted for various reasons. And there were lots that didn't. So I just think that we, we need a better understanding of that. And a lot of that sometimes has to do with, with politics and cliches and stereotypes of, like, we don't want to admit the degree to which Western countries did this, whereas in Eastern Europe, actually, co- the resistance to Nazism was primarily an Eastern European phenomenon. Uh, Yugoslavia, Poland, Russians. Uh, Belarus, yeah. And, and, the, and, the, and the Russians who were the biggest fighters yeah, of the so Nazis. Let's right? be honest. You want to compare. Let's compare. We talk about, we always were told about, oh, Denmark's amazing. They saved the, how many Jews were saved? In Denmark? 700. Very, very many. Yeah. How many Jews were saved by the, in, the, in the forest of Belarus by the partisans? I mean, let's be honest. So the real resistance was in Eastern Europe, and yet we're kind of told the opposite. Yeah, all the killing was in Eastern Europe, and then Western Europe was kind of good. It's like, no. A lot of times I think we just, we're not given a full picture for various reasons, or it's, it's also, you know, we, we just commemorated D-Day. D-Day is very important, but it was, not a, it was not a huge battle like Stalingrad, right? I mean, right. so who liberated Auschwitz? Uh, not the Americans, right? I mean, Soviet Red Army. You know, what, what you're saying kind of flies in the face of, you know, the three of us were from America and, and we all live here now. Um, and, you know, we're all westernly educated and Western culture, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, I've noticed you write a lot about this and kind of these tirades about, um, in a good way, tirades, about um, maybe we'll call it like Western thought supremacy about a whole bunch of things, about about the peace process here, about conflicts here. Um, I'd love to get into that a little bit more because, you know, it's, it's something that makes you stop and, and really think about where you are. And exactly what you're saying now is, you know, kind of takes me there. It's like, yeah, it is true. We always tend to think of, you know, Western Europe and, and, and as more civilized and as those who, who try to help more. But, but the, they just have better marketing. You know, yeah, but I mean, that's kind of our biases is really coming through. And, and if you stop and look at and and really look at yourself in the mirror and you look at the actual research and you look at the actual data, 
what you're saying is spot on. Look, to their less credit, it, it is a, was a self-critical culture which had the seeds of its own betterment within itself, i.e., uh, you know, the anti-slavery movement. Was, right. it was Yeah, the West was the one that did, start, did the slavery, but actually it's the one that also abolished it. And right. by the way, other cultures where there was slavery, we don't have to name them all, but there was slavery in lots of other places in the world. Still there's, is. There's not a lot of places where you could s- you see an anti-slavery movement right. to the degree you have in the West. Um, human rights, um, you know, wh- whether it's going back to Magna Carta or whatever, or the Bill of Rights, I mean, you know, the, in- the idea of individual rights and those types of things, that you're not just disappeared by some intelligence organization and chucked out of an airplane. I mean... There's lots of things that the West deserves a huge amounts of credit for. Um, Absolutely. And, and the, the very idea that, like, you know, the idea that you should be critical of the state, whereas in many places in the world we're seeing a rise of authoritarianism where you can't be. So it's, it shouldn't just be, yeah, it shouldn't just be bashing the West, but I think that there is the arrogance sometimes we see, and also in the Israel-Palestinian conflict uh, yeah. from the West, of, of this idea of, oh, you, I mean, let's just talk, for instance, for a second about the Gaza thing. So we just had the, 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 the conflict. The conflict in Gaza, Israel is criticized, and perhaps rightly so, for the fact that children were killed. I don't know, 60 or whatever it is, a certain number of people that are children. Children, of course, should never be killed in war. They're obviously innocent. So that's right. We should be criticized for that. Okay. But the idea in America that said, you know, Israel's a war criminal state, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. In a bombing in Mosul, which I, I was there days after it happened in 2017, uh, the U.S.-led coalition uh, bombed a, a huge building and killed more than 150 people in just one bombing, uh, in just one building. And and there was, of course, that was you can read, you can Google it and, and read about it. But there was no huge call for like let's put the people on trial who did that because it was, was it even it covered was, in the it press. It was covered a lot in the press because huge numbers okay. of people died. And after that, the coalition was much more careful with the bombings inside the city because they knew they didn't have enough intelligence. The reason for the bombing was that there were snipers and stuff in the building, and they, they flattened it. And there were large numbers of people hiding in it, apparently. So the Americans, by the way, did the same thing in the Gulf War 91. They flattened a bunker called Ferdos Bunker, whatever, that they thought was a, c- a command and control place for Saddam. It was actually a, a massive bunker with hundreds of people. F- hundreds of people were killed. And we tend to say, okay, but that's a military mistake. Militaries make mistakes. When it comes to Israel, the idea that wait they flattened the building that they thought that they that had Hamas members in the top of it, but also had children in the bottom of it, and with Israel, it's like well, no, that's not a mistake. It's obviously intentional. Right. I mean, yeah. which is insane. Where, where the farious intent from? is given to every right. action that yes. Israel. Yes, I mean takes. it's in, it's insane. So I think that there you do see this kind of idea. I think this this self righteousness in the West. Yeah. Always pointing at Israel sometimes about things, and and if you just raise your hand and say, well, yeah, but. Didn't you guys just do the same thing in 20, a few years ago? And they said, well, that's whataboutism. It's not whataboutism to ask, like, isn't my phone similar to your phone? Like, it's two things that are the same. Does this work better or that? It's not whataboutism to ask, like, okay, yes, Israel flattened a building in Gaza. The Americans flattened a building in Mosul. Let's talk about these two incidents. That's comparison. <laughs> and this idea that, no, no, don't talk. We, we have to talk just about Israel. How much of that could you attribute to anti-Semitism? Even passive anti-Semitism—that's think, that's, that's I think just a in the huge back of I think a lot mind. of it is. I mean, I think like there has been an intentional attempt to transform Israel into this new pariah, like South Africa, whatever. Yeah. And I understand that part of that's just the fact that what you know, Western activists need a cause celebrate, and Israel is like the bad thing. The way, not so long ago, I guess it was people were fighting for the rights of Tibet or whatever. Every every few years, it was some new thing. Mm. But I do think, yeah, I think the way in which the anti-Israelism blends together a whole series of things like, you know, whether it's A, anti-Semitism openly, 
uh, but also the the old days, the Arab nationalist movements, mm-hmm. um, and then later on Islamist Muslim Brotherhood style right. movements, and it blends so it blends together also now what we ha- neo Marxism, which we talk about a lot on this show, or intersectionality, you know. yeah, which or, um, which stems from it, right? Right. I mean, so I think that we see. Let's take, for instance, one example used in the United States, the attempt to portray Israel as a, as a white country. Oh, um, God. I, we've seen, for instance, you know, allegations. White, white colonialist, yes. Yeah, the settler colonialist, i.e. Yeah. it's similar to what was done to the Aborigines. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, and be, but openly people say things. I saw, for instance, a post a bit ago, but, but there were some a- Arab-Jewish um, clashes in, in a fuller or something about whether or not Arabs from Nazareth could go to a park or something. I'm sure the people that are against Arabs there are maybe racist, but... The, the 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 thing in America was to call them white supremacists or yeah. attacking Arabs in a flu. No, no, they're not white supremacists. The people they're fighting. There's two groups. It's like in India, or whatever. You have uh, Hindus and Muslims clashing. Yeah. The Hindus are not white supremacists. Now they may be Hindu supremacists, but that's fine. There may be Islamist supremacists as well. But let's be honest. Most Israelis are just not white. They're not and white. So, you, you have to look around yeah, this country. I mean, that's a, that's and, and one can make a very good argument as to why even Ashkenazi Jews are not white. That's right. Cer- I, certainly in this country, you know. Israel is 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 factually um, in the Jewish population more than half Mizrahi, and the and then the rest of the, the Jews are a mix, of course, of Ashkenazi and then and Ethiopian Jews. Obviously, Ethiopian Jews are not not white. So yeah, and, I mean, and it's it's something that drives me crazy. That's taken over the progressive discourse. In America, and you know, people always run into anti-Semitism, and and I hate doing it just because not not because it may or may not be true, just because it's lazy. It's like, oh, anti-Semitism. Okay, so if it's anti-Semitism, then what? You know, like okay, now what? So how do you engage with that? Well, that, it's, that, and, and it's not it's not all anti. It, it's it's prevalent, maybe prevalent anti. Something that started as anti-Semitism. That's this is just my my feeling that in many cases there's something that could have started as anti-Semitism, which has become prevalent in a cultural. Uh, in in the culture, and you combine that with a mass amount of ignorance, right? Lack of an ability to appreciate nuance, and add to that the entire. This is not a very thought out academic perspective, but add to that social media echo chambers, oh, yeah, the yeah. inability to properly filter or source factual information that has not been put through some sort of a. Uh, editorial filter one yep. way or another and the, the you know um, you used to be able to get like one line from the media now everyone or, or, or just the fact that people don't yeah. really read sorry you know you, you just wrote a book but a lot of people don't read books no they don't do you have thoughts this is something that i get asked a lot i'm sure you do do you have thoughts how what's the best way to contextualize our predicament for people because you know the 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 Hasbaraists, which which I'm not usually a fan of, although I get where they're coming from and it's well intentioned. Um, you know, Israel's justified everything we do is is candy and roses and everything's right, and, and it's you know it's not true. I mean, if we want to look at ourselves very honestly in the mirror, there's a lot of things we do, but it, it's conflict. We're in a national conflict with with another people, and a mistakes will happen. B. Not smart policies will be made. Um, and so it's you can't just say Israel's right, you know, Palestinians wrong, or Israel's right, Hamas is wrong. Well, Hamas is wrong, yes, but like it, because of all the shades of nuance, and it's really really hard to talk about nuance these days, especially with the hardcore progressives. So what do you do other than keep trying to contextualize everything and keep trying to speak in nuance? The kind of articles you write, the kind of things we try to do with the show. I mean, what do we do? 
Well, yes, it depends on the nature of the of the critique, but I think in general, uh, if you're if the sense is that the, the critique is not authentic, i.e., the person's uh, saying that Israel is not just that that uh, they they say that Israel kills kids or whatever, and you don't get the sense that like explaining to them that Israel uh, doesn't intentionally kill kids will actually make any impact, because what they're really saying is. I hate Israel and it shouldn't exist and it kills kids in Gaza and that's why it shouldn't exist. Yeah. Not, you're entering a conversation in which you're automatically um, you know, defensive and I think that sometimes it's it may be better to take the maxim um, you know, never explain, never complain. Um, you can, there so, are you say, so you're saying the Hasbaraists are doing what they need to be doing? I don't doing? know what the Hasbaraists are do, doing necessarily. I mean, the Hasb- there are Hasbaraists out there. I don't know exactly. I mean, they, they put out certain things. They're mocking now Bella Hadid. I don't think that may be a losing battle as well. It's like, you know, whoever this, the Hadids, the, the the models or whatever. Yeah. They, so they put out something about they got something wrong. They put out a meme showing that. Yeah, outrage of the week. I'm not really sure it matters. Like, so what, how do you win points against them? You mock them. I don't. I'm not even sure half the time that the what the playing field that they're on is is a playing field that matters. So it's like, mm. I don't look. Hasbaras are doing all sorts of things. Sometimes they'll show an Arab doctor in a hospital and say, "You see, it's not a parasite. We have Arabs see, look, in the hospitals. We live together." I'm not entirely sure how much how much it works. I mean, of course, countries can can try to do all sorts of things like that. I think that I, I'd be interested to see, you know, a measure of, of um, you, you can measure PR, right? Like if, if I'm a Nike and I'm trying to sell shoes, Israel's trying to sell itself in a sense. So you can measure: did this succeed or not? I don't know. My sense is lots of it's not very successful, but people people are doing it. Um, you know, Israel has obviously an uphill battle, and I think we saw in the last conflict how many people spent the Trump years girding for war against Israel in the sense that during the Trump years, uh, for whatever reason, they most of their hatred was directed towards Trump. But the human rights reports that came out um, accusing Israel of apartheid were timed to come out when the Biden administration came in so that the narrative could be set in stone. Mm. It's apartheid. Now, by the way, it's not the first time Israel's been called apartheid. Back in Durban, it was the same thing. Sure. So, yeah. But it was recreating that narrative. Okay, the Biden administration's coming in. We need to set the narrative tone in the West now. Israel's bad. We need to get back on the Israel horse and start riding it again. Because they knew that during the Trump administration, there wasn't going to be any movement in Washington on this issue because Trump administration was doing its own thing. So I think that there is, a, there is an intentional... Um, narrative, not I wouldn't say a plot, but there is an intentional attempt um, by large numbers of people to try to make Israel the issue. And I think Israel fell into a trap in Gaza because I think yeah. it didn't understand how much the playing field was being moved out, out from under its feet. Mm. As what Israel tried to do in Gaza what was Israel did before in 2014. Yeah. 20, uh, 20, and then, by the way, you remember the airstrikes, the multi-day campaign in 2018, 2019. Yes. Yep. Actually, to Israel's credit, almost no one was killed in those two... Uh, Yep. Those two rounds of fighting, they destroyed a whole bunch of infrastructure. This time, Israel also tried to target infrastructure, which is the underground metro. They actually didn't try to target people. Remember back in 2009, uh, when the air st- when the battle began, Castled, the first airstrikes were against the Hamas police uh, guys that had I just remember, been drafted. Training camp. Yep. Those guys, I mean, in a sense, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of Hamas, but those guys were totally innocent. I mean, these were guys that had signed up to be like police patrolmen for Hamas. Okay. They were not guys digging tunnels for terrorists. They it seemed like it was like just, li- they cho- just choosing a, a very low-value target that wouldn't just have slaughtered them. I mean, population. They wouldn't really retaliate against. It was like the, the, the graduation ceremony from police camp, basically. Yeah, they were waiting for this to happen, and they wanted to open the... I mean, look, not that Hamas had been firing rockets for mo- weeks before sure. that. Hamas had provoked Israel into a conflict. I'm saying that the, cho- the choice by the Omer administration to target that those guys 
we would never do that today. Israel doesn't. No. I, I spoke to the IDF uh, on the record about the campaign recently. And they were like, no, no, we didn't go after any any low-level Hamas people. We, yeah, we targeted twenty five senior commanders, right. and we targeted infrastructure. We didn't even we didn't even bother with low level people. Like, we just don't. It's not. That's why you know we had uh, two weeks ago. We had uh, a friend of ours, Colonel uh, Reserve Colonel uh, Ruven Ben Shalom, um, and and we we're talking about how fifteen hundred airstrikes, yes. two hundred people were killed. I mean, that's as close to pinpoint. That is Israel's way of war today, right. because if you look at the strikes in Syria, which is, as according to the former chief of staff, it's thousands. We don't know how many, but yeah. how many people, how many civilians have been killed in five years of the campaign between the wars in Syria? As far as I know, almost none. In fact, maybe none. How many what? Civilians have been killed in Syria, in Israel's thousands of airstrikes. Oh, none, none. Iranian targets. None. As far as we and, know, and it's very almost, few Iranian it's targets also. Very few Iranians have been killed, just a handful. And every once in a while, Syrian air defenders uh, are killed because they're they're manning the panchers or whatever, and they right. get killed. Uh, in ge- but in general, we're talking like not no one. And that's I think that you could say Israel's revolutionized warfare. Now, whether that's good or not, that type of total precision warfare, you could argue that actually it doesn't work very well. It's just mowing the grass. But it's completely Israel mowing has, the grass. Israel There's has perfected a war in which no one dies. Now. And and the people's like, what about what about Gaza? And very little. That's yeah, true. <laughs> uh, the Gaza thing, I think you would say that actually, the critics are a bit, you know, Israel did fall into that trap because the critics are a bit right. I think for whatever reason, there were some mistakes made in terms of, and 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 I think that the war was probably not well planned. And I think that it, I'm not saying that the that going after the metro was not well planned. That was, but there were things that were done apparently that I think, certainly in terms of. Um, public relations were, were not good for Israel. So, uh, and not well yeah. explained. I, I mean, you're, you're both a journalist and kind of a student of war. Are you talking about the the media building? Well, what, we know, know why, for instance, civilians were killed. How did Israel manage to fight so many conflicts between 2014 and 2021 with almost zero civilian casualties? And then suddenly, on May uh, 11th and 12th, it did, in fact, kill you know, some kids. Now you could, I mean, and it looks like Israel's PR machine or its spokespeople were not even ready for that because, you know, if it's true that Hamas rockets killed half those, a third of those kids, well, then they should have been out there on, Mar- on May 11th saying, look, mm. the Hamas rockets are inaccurate. Hamas is killing its own people, if it's true. Uh, I think that there was, I'd get the sense that the Netanyahu administration, because of the local politics in Israel, uh, slouched into that conflict. And I get the sense that the the spokespeople's units and the usual people that are out there quickly explaining why is Israel doing this, what's happening, they were like a week behind the ball. Um, they always you are. Know. Well, they are. They, they well, often I mean, are. We, we have, we have um, a structural disadvantage in that because, uh, you know, I remember, you know this probably from what you do, and I remember uh, from my time in the military – you, you have to authorize all these things and you have to make sure right. you're not saying secrets that you're not allowed to and you want to make sure you're saying accurate things, which the other side definitely doesn't care about and, and you know, bloggers don't care about and the media has much faster time loops. And so, you know, you're at a disadvantage there. But yeah, they seem very slow. They seem very reactive. No, but, but look, I, I think that there's something else and, and, and I'm not going to be very eloquent because I don't know how to make this eloquent, but it, it seems like Things that people that are from the United States, such as ourselves, who have noticed particular trends in progressive discourse or the way that people are referring to Israel, and we talked about this before, about how certain things came out of the closet when Biden took office, uh, the, the way people are nowadays able to 
uh, be susceptible to Hamas propaganda and Hamas, you know, and their and their PR, uh, which which we could probably learn a couple of things from. Uh, I think we should hire their PR people. Uh, It it, it just seems like the writing, in in many ways, is on the wall. Like, like it's not. It's not only a matter of how do you explain what we're doing. It's a matter of understanding that you're going to fall upon deaf ears. And I don't. And I don't. And I don't think that. Well, that's why I said I think there's some arguments that aren't even worth getting into. Right, and, and it seems like any argument that the Netanyahu administration at least would have thrown out there to defend it would have fallen down those death ears because they would have said, "Look who it's coming from." Yeah, he's the Israeli. This Trump, is Bibi. Right. It's the Israeli Trump. It's it's right. you know it's so. Well, but you can utilize the foreign ministry more and the um and the and the IDF spokespeople's union and stuff. And I think the foreign ministry, for instance, has been has been gutted under the Netanyahu administration and and doesn't even you know is almost sometimes just totally absent. I mean, can you can you talk so, a little bit you know. Something that happened, um, had a meeting yesterday with, with Dennis Ross, um, the chairman of, of, well, a bunch of things, but he's, he's also the chairman of JPPI, and he came in for a meeting. He said he did 70 media interviews during the Gaza thing. And, a lot. Huh? It's a lot. That is a lot. And um, in almost all of them, he pointed this out. I noticed this in my two or three media interviews there's this like framing that Hamas isn't even there. No, exactly. That's a key point. One hundred percent. That's right. And that's a that's a key point. Hamas is not even mentioned. That's right. And if you bring it up, yeah, yeah, Hamas, Hamas, Hamas. But why is Israel right. exactly? That's that's true. A hundred percent. The UN statements don't even mention Hamas. Uh, they talk about well, we found the tunnel that was underneath our building or whatever. We, we, you know, militant groups built it or something. Well, which groups? I mean, <laughs> by the way, that's part of the framing about the uh, Israel still occupying Gaza, which is part of also the apartheid true. Yeah, framing. Yeah. They that's say that Israel, that's, that, that's all intentional. It's intentional, and it disappears Hamas from the equation because they say that. What do you mean Israel occupies Gaza? There is no Hamas. I'm like, well, who's firing the rockets? Militant groups. Which ones? Well, you know, some group. We well, just name it. I mean, it's impossible to pin it down, and I think that. You know, that is true. For, and, the, and the way in which the narrative was discussed, like, they would say things like, well, you know, Israel's military headquarters is in Tel Aviv. Therefore, the rockets being fired in Tel Aviv are legitimate. It's like, what? what? That doesn't make sense. Like, remember when there was the whole discussion about Israel doing precision attacks on, on, on civilian buildings in Gaza, that the building is used, part of it, by Hamas. And they'd say, well, that's a war crime. Israel shouldn't target civilian infrastructure. And then people say, well, Hamas is firing all these inaccurate, you know, these rockets on Tel Aviv. The people, yeah, but Israel has a military has base. Has a military base right in the middle. Like, yeah, yeah but okay, the Pentagon is also in Washington. But that's a, be- I mean, that's a bullshit argument. Yeah, exactly. Bullshit, that's the same. Well, there are soldiers exist? that live when they're but, not on base in Fairfax, Nick, Virginia. Right. So let's fire rockets at well, Fairfax. Well, that's right. Like, so what? Taliban can attack the Washington, D.C. just randomly. I mean, it doesn't make sense. But Nick Kristof and all these people, writers, made this point. I mean, it was out there. Well, yeah, but Tel Aviv, there's a military headquarters in Tel Aviv. Okay, so, so, so what? So Hamas should, ha- can Hamas use precision attacks on that? I don't, I, don't, I don't understand the discussion, but it was used You know as what, sure, excuse. I'll give them that. If they knew how to fire directly on right. the Kiryat, go but for They don't it. do it. They just, of fire, they they just fire rockets here and there. So I think that there were so many parts of the conflict, and the, yeah, the disappearing aspect of Hamas in which, and yet the, the rocket fire was unprecedented this time. 4,000 yeah. rockets. And the way in which Hamas is not mentioned in many of the discussions, yeah. or as you said, it's, well, yeah, but Hamas, let's talk about Israel. You know, Israel's right. the powerful country. Israel's the only with F-35s. Yeah, the, the, whole, I mean, uh, the whole John Oliver it's thing. A, it's of, a of, very, uh, the very... The disproportionate use of force, and, and I've, I've yeah. gone on this. I, I've said this on our disproportionate. You should look at disproportionate intentions, not disproportionate use of force. Like, well, what, since what was that how, a measure you're of to win, how do you, You're supposed to win wars using exactly. disproportionate force. 
Exactly. Well, was it? D Day, by the way, was disproportionate. I mean, you know the amount of people that were used in the D Day invasion. Can you imagine? They should have spent sent less. Right. So it's to make it more. By the way, it's not fair. The Germans only had like one division there, so they should have only sent like one division. To, what? Why? The D Day was a huge operation. They called it Overlord. That's not fair. They're terrible. The the whole concept of <laughs> it. So, you know where this leads me is that, uh, you know, we've been talking about kind of a, the Israeli. You know complexity in the in Americanized what's happening over there. You know, I look and you do too. You write about the Middle East, not all except for the the usual actors: Turkey, Iran, Qatar to an extent. There was not a peep from any government in this region that I saw at least on no on Gaza. That's true, except Turkey's Turkey was worse than Iran, by the way. Yes, Turkish media was totally crazy, <coughs> worse than Iranian media. Um, Turkey was very bad. Iran's quite, of course, we know Iran. It's a known, it's a known problem. But um, China was quite critical of Israel. And but was, I understood that the Chinese criticism of Israel is part of the anti is the China America conflict, and they have unfortunately, in some ways, decided that Israel's. I think in the ter- in the terms of one uh, diplomat recently, a beachhead of America, the Middle East, which is actually the old talking point from yeah. the Nasser regime. So that's not great. But I do understand that that was trying to make a dig at the states, but. It makes China sense. China was tough on Israel. Uh, yeah, as you said, yeah, I don't think um, in the rest of the region, no, I didn't see a lot of... Um, no protests. no ambassadors were called. Not much. There was a protest in Baghdad or something. Well, um, there, no, there, there were protests in Jordan trying to get yeah. to the border. But that's, that, right. that's something that, you know, lets me to believe is, you know what, maybe we need to stop talking to American progressives because they're just irrelevant. I mean, if the actual people, certainly the governments in the Middle East, are like not listening to them and are siding with Israel quietly on this. Is, is like maybe they're just irrelevant. Maybe you know they've made know. themselves irrelevant from all of these things. Um, I was shocked yesterday. I saw a tweet by by uh, your favorite congresswoman Ilhan Omar from Minnesota. I'm from, I'm from, I'm from Minnesota. Minnesota. She's she actually is the representative of the district that my family lives in. So I, I've got a former camper of mine who, who's a fan of the show. Um, and he lives in that district, and he's very outspoken against her. And uh, Nikki Haley called her out for lumping Israel and the U.S. together with Hamas and the Taliban as perpetrators of war crimes. And this is coming from a U.S. congressperson, lumping two democracies. I don't lose sleep over it. I don't either, but it just shows you kind of where that side of America is going. But, but what are your thoughts on... You know, the fact that the rest of the Middle East is kind of like quietly, yeah, go get them, go get Hamas, you know. Well, I think that, I mean, for Egypt or whatever, I mean, Hamas is in Muslim Brotherhood, so it's, a, it's an against the regime. I think that, um, look, I mean, Hamas is a destabilizing uh, terrorist group. I mean, firing rockets, and, and I think for most of the Middle East that's outside of the Turkey-Iran orbit, uh, they don't want destabilization. They don't want more Houthis. They don't want more Hezbollah. They want the rest of the Middle East, which is can be you know su- success and stability and those types of things. So, I think they see Hamas as the Houthis and Hezbollah, a group that is a non-state militant actor, which is willing to use missiles uh, to totally destroy and destabilize a region. And w- we see the way in which the region is kind of in a ma- in a civil war between those types of groups, the Houthi, mostly backed by Iran. Houthis, Hezbollah, Hamas, which are states within states, yeah. controlling these states um, and destroying them from within. Yeah. 
versus the rest of the region, which is the, the Saudi, Gulf, Egypt, you know, other, other countries. I mean, and those countries understand that there's a contest over places like Iraq, for instance, between the Hajj al-Shabi or the PMU or whatever it is, the IRGC aspect of Iraq, which is occupied by Iran, yeah. versus the parts of Iraq that would like to recover from the ISIS war and have highways and hospitals and electricity and things. I mean, you know, the, the region is, is, at a, is in some ways at a crossroads between those two question marks. Seems wow. like it. It really does. One, one of the things that's kind of changing, I'm going to change gears for a second. But one, one, one of the things that I, I appreciate that you write about and that you post about is kind of the, you know, our problems sh- are, are our problems. They affect the people. If we're talking about Israel, the Israelis and the Palestinians. And the solutions should not necessarily be dictated to us as to how we should act or how we should feel or how we're you know, inadequate about handling something. Can you for a second talk about that uh, and, and also you know maybe shed light on on uh, you know the peace industry and how it's uh, oh, the peace industry <laughs> is it a part of the problem well I'm just trying to understand the question um, the the issue is the degree to which this kind of Western framework in which there's a question of like when you, when are you guys gonna solve this how do we yeah. solve the conflict that kind of thing yeah well, I think there's there's a fundamental a fundamental problem, which is that what w- we hear two narratives coming out of the let's say Western discussion about this. One is there is an Israel-Palestinian conflict that needs to be solved, and the solve solving apparently is a two-state solution, in which that that's kind of that kind of the paradigm we hear, and then we kind of get a second side of that. That's ostensibly a peace paradigm, but the second side of that is insofar as that's not solved, then then can, groups like Hamas have a right to you know, resist Israel's occupation or right. that's why there's violence. People, people, someone posts that or something. This is the, you know, there was a, a, some, a rocket that hit a building or something and someone says, this is the price Israel pays for occupation. Price, people firing rockets at civilian buildings is not a price. It's illegal to fire rockets at civilian buildings. That doesn't make any sense. So there's the other side of the thing is like, well, no, I'm pro-peace. I want two states. And until there's two states, I'm pro-war, <laughs> which means I support the idea that these, there yeah. will be endless war. Well, that doesn't make sense. The, the, you can have peace in the absence of a solution, i.e. the absence of two states. You can have You, you can have the peace. absence of war yeah, and that can be fully positive. having that be, peace. That could be a good thing. I mean, Somaliland and Somalia is a breakaway part of Somalia. It's peaceful within its borders. I would prefer the Somaliland approach of an autonomous region that's peaceful as opposed to the Somali approach, which is endless war between extremists and all these mm. other groups in Kenya and all these groups that are involved in Mogadishu. I mean, w- w- wouldn't you prefer the peaceful part, which is the... And they, the people say, yeah, but Somaliland doesn't exist. It's not recognized. It's like, okay, I would prefer the unrecognized part that's peaceful, like the Kurdistan region of Iraq, as opposed to the part of the country that is recognized that doesn't really exist and, in fact, in, is involved in endless conflict. Yeah. So I think in Israel we have the same problem, which is that you can have... Uh, an autonomous Palestinian region in the West Bank that is relatively peaceful. In fact, it has been for many years. Um, yeah, you can. You, you, I guess you can have a Hamas stand, which exists. I guess as long as there's some sort of a ceasefire agreement, just like in the old days, the Israel, original Israel agreements with places like Lebanon were just there were just ceasefire agreements. The countries remained at war technically. So you can have an endless ceasefire agreement. I guess that's preferable. I think that the idea that we have to have endless endless war imposed upon us. Um, in the region because the region doesn't have the kind of um, boundaries and things that have been created in the European Union or something, I think is, is problematic. And I think it's certainly 
is is part of this imposed concept of solution, which is that you know some things maybe just are not exactly solvable. And, yeah. Or and maybe there's degrees of solvability as opposed to right. a binary concept. But there's of also solve, there's also solve. people that have made their entire careers off of this and that well, need yeah, this to keep right. going. Well, I don't think it's a peace industry. I think it's a war industry. I think that there is no. I think the people that are ostensibly involved in peace, when do they get the most happy and when do they get the most profits? When, when they're we just on had CNN a con- every day. We just day. had a conflict. Yeah. I get the sense some of these people wait for the conflict and they. And they just are salving for it. Like, oh, good, there's a new war. Now, now I can really talk about peace. What? <laughs> what you really mean is you're talking about war. Because you, when you hear the paradigms that they put out there, those people never propose actually solutions in which somehow Israel and Hamas and the Palestinians already can all coexist somehow. They never have some solution for that. They say things like, they say things like well, you know, that's the price you have to pay for occupation. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a paradigm for in this war. Because that's exactly what Hezbollah says. Israel's right. occupying the Sheba Farms, which is like some place the size of this room or whatever. And because Israel occupies some place the size of this room, Hezbollah has to have 100,000 rockets and destroy Lebanon. It's like, what? doesn't make sense. Yeah. That, that's like saying that because there's some border dispute between Maine and Canada, therefore America has to have some huge massive army to one day invade Canada over some island that they dispute. It doesn't make any sense. So I think a lot of times the occupation narrative as, a, as an excuse for endless conflict seems to benefit people that are ostensibly pro-peace. Because if you were pro-peace, you'd try to find a way that things can work. So what we call here manage the conflict versus try to well, solve it, get it to get it to a, a civil place, get it to a place where on the day-to-day level people can just go about and live their lives and, and, and earn incomes. Um, you, you know, a lot of those people you talk about, this, this is where, you know, if we go back to the progressive context in America... The hardcore anti—it's an anti-Israel movement. They say when they say the it's the cost of occupation, right? Their solution is not a two-state solution. No, their solution is is a one-state solution. But by the way, they openly say that now. Uh, they do, the, but they dupe a lot of what I call you know well-meaning kind of useful idiots who don't like war but don't really get into all this, and so they say, yeah, the occupation. So in their minds, they're still thinking two-state solution, free Palestine. They're not realize they're not realizing they're being duped for an Islamist one state well, I think version. We saw more in the recent war, this river to the sea stuff. And oh, the yeah. idea that the also connected to these human rights reports saying that all of Israel is uh, is an apartheid state in which they include Gaza under Israeli occupation. I think there is a there is a growing attempt to to describe Israel as one state because that's mm-hmm. they say it's it's one systems of laws, which obviously it's not. Gaza is not under Israeli law, <laughs> and, and when the Jews and areas A and B in the West Bank are not it's either nonsense. Yeah. But they say it's all one thing. It's an apartheid state, and therefore the only solution to apartheid state is what happened in South Africa, which is to turn it into a state for all its peoples. And and I think also the settler colonial thing. When they mm. say, "Well, Israel is a settler colonial state," ah, therefore it shouldn't exist, right. which is bizarre because the real the real comparison ostensibly for settler colonial. Is like Australia. Everyone says, okay, well, we're going to remove Australia off the map. Only with Israel, when it's an, even if you accept the idea that it's a settler colonial state, it's like, okay, so the solution is for that is Israel should be like Canada. They're like, no, no, no. We, when, when we say that with Israel, we mean it shouldn't exist. What do you mean? Yeah, what do you mean by that? Well, because the paradigm that says Israel's a settler colonial state, right. when they say it and you say, okay, well, what's the end result of that? Well, it, Israel should be destroyed because it should become a Palestinian state, river to the sea, blah, 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 or one state. And you say, wait a second, I don't understand. What are, are there other settler colonial states in the world? People are like, yeah, well, of course. Settler colonialism is just like what happened in the United States in the you know, 1800s. It's what happened in Australia. Sure. It's happening. 
Like, oh, wait, but American, Australian, Canada still exist, right? Right, they exist. Okay, so wait, so Canada's not just be like Canada? And, and pe people, well, no, no, when we say settler colonialism, we mean Israel has to be destroyed. But it's what like, is that? I, I hear that, and I think that it's such an immoral argument because it, it literally is like, it, it's like, what, are, are we the Death Star? We're just supposed to, like, destroy Israel? It's not going to exist. <laughs> we're a physical place. There are millions of people that live here. Where do they Nine go? Nine million people here. Where, where, where well, that's the big, because the big lie of the, of, the, of the settler colonial thing was it was an attempt to, in the 1950s, to connect Israel to Algeria and, right. the, and the people that were um, French settlers. And the idea that French, uh, French settlers would, 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 in fact, what they did do, which is go back to France. Go back to France. People yeah. thought, people, they said, when they, the people that were involved in the whole Zionism is racism thing at the UN, well, yeah, but Jews in Israel are just Europeans that showed up here. Yeah, the, those and few who lived here prior to who are Sephardic can stay, and all the Ashkenazi no, will go back It's all to just Europe, a right? bunch of nonsense, because after you've been in a place for hundreds of years, I mean, whether, whether or not you say, well, Israel's, Jews have just been here for thousands of years, but you say, okay, the people that did come here from Yemen or Iraq or Turkey or, or, or France or whatever, whatever they've been here for a very long time, they're not going to go anywhere. So, yeah. And also, it's all, it's all a big lie anyway, because the same Americans who say, uh, or the progressives who say, well, yeah, but it's a settler colonial state, river, river to the sea, the, you know, the Jews should leave, whatever, it's like okay, so where where were all those Jewish refugees? The nine million people go. You're gonna you're gonna let them be, let them know America? It's all it's all a scam. Within the within the logical the argument, yeah. there's no logic to it. Of course not. It's it's a self-containing thing. They uh, just throw as many anti-Israel things sure. up at the wall and see which will stick. Well, it's a settler colonial state. River to the sea. One state solution. Yeah. Bi national state. And they won't engage in a discussion about it either. No, it's all just nonsense. And um, that's why. And, and, and they try to shout down anyone who's trying to speak about it, even with nuance, even even people who are critical Israelis or Jews who are trying to speak about it with with you know some level of self-criticism and and say let's engage in honest dialogue they don't want it no and I think that's part of the overall um, huge chasm between the the Israeli Jewish community and the American Jewish community and the and the, the way the discussions that are taking place because mm. I think that where, whereas once there was a discussion that could actually happen I yes. think once you've written off Israel and said no there there Israel shouldn't exist blah 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 uh, it's like okay, listen. If you don't think that this country should exist, and the people here are get, well, the people here do exist, then they'll just keep existing, and you'll you don't like them, and that's okay. I mean, but if you made that argument about any other country, like well, we don't think the Congo should exist, like okay, but that's a colonial argument. The Congolese are in Congo; they're not going to go anywhere. So, regardless of the fact that you don't think Congo should exist, it does exist, and you're an idiot, and it's and, and you're you're the one that is going to stop existing. The Congo will still be there. Yeah. So the the nature of the story, I think, of those people is that. They're so out of touch, and there can't there can't so there touch. can't be a conversation. Right. If you think that I shouldn't exist, what am I going to do? I'm supposed to defend my right to exist to you? Why should I just walk away from the conversation? Yeah, yeah you still exist. Right. I mean, and I and I win in the end because actually I do exist, and it's all the the the, the kind of academic the discussion of whether a country should exist can only take place in a ridiculous academic <laughs> place because it can't because in reality the people are just there. And most people... Well, it's, 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 what, it's what's all... Guard. It's like a thought experiment. Most people don't vote yeah. to disband themselves. Yeah. Every once in a while, it's true. Countries stop existing. Like, like it's true. Uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire stops existing. Yeah. Uh, Yugoslavia no longer exists. Rhodesia. There are countries that stop existing. I guess there are countries sometimes, I mean, I guess historically, that just get you know, invaded or destroyed, um, and then they get turned into some other thing. I mean, usually the countries we can think of in modern times that stop existing... Were like weird creations of people, like mm. Czechoslovakia or whatever, where the constituent parts just chose to go there in separate ways. Yeah. There's not that many, I think, examples we can think of in recent times when a whole country stopped existing. I no. mean, 
where, where like it, it, like in the old days, it would happen. Like the, the the Russians would partition Poland or something, and then the country right. would cease to exist for hundred years. But actually, I can't think of a lot of places that were just um, rolled over and totally destroyed. Usually, when you have examples like that, they were like Biafra or Tibet or something. They were mm-hmm. constituent parts of another country where that country claimed them and then just rolled yeah. over them. And whatever little polity they had there in Tibet or whatever just ceased to exist. But it had never really been a country. I'm not, not mm-hmm. against Tibet. I'm just saying that from the, from the Chinese view was like, yeah, but that's just always been part of us. And from Nigeria's point of view, whether or not Nigeria is a fake construct made by the British, but it doesn't matter. Biafra was never a country. So when there was a huge war for the Biafrans to try to break away, and Nigeria was like, well, no, you're not going to break away. We'll just slaughter all of you. I, I want to ask a question here before, and we want to get into kind of a political discussion a little bit about what everything that's, the chaos that's happening here in Israel right now. Um, before before we do, we ask this of a lot of guests, and I'm curious, um, I, I actually haven't seen, I've seen you write about it from um, kind of a roundabout kind of way, but I'd be curious uh, to hear your opinion or or if you're aware of interesting thinking. So, you know, you have the one crowd that, that's calling for a one-state solution, which is an end to Israel. You have the one crowd that's calling for the, the two-state solution, you know, Clinton style. Are you seeing interesting, original proposals that, that could actually be realistic in some crazy scenario about, you know, where we could see ourselves going vis-a-vis the Palestinians? I remember a while ago you posted... Um, you posted some kind of article about how there are plenty of these kind of conflicts around the world that were just never resolved, and there's autonomy. Yeah. You talked about sure. the Basques. You talked about Northern Cyprus. You talked about Kurdistan. You talked about that he, uh, just earlier. So, I mean, I've heard moderate but interesting right-wingers here in Israel say, why do they ever need to stay? Why can't they just be an autonomous region within Israel? Well, why shouldn't Israel be an autonomous region within Palestine? I mean, the right-wingers that say that are liars, by the way, because they're, oh, because I know they're, they're lying. Not being, I know they're because not. I, because you say, oh, why well, agree? So then let's just reverse it. Israel can be an autonomous region within Jordan. They're like, no, 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 we, we deserve a state. It's like, well, we, why do you deserve a state if you think they shouldn't have one? Right. I mean, because the Palestinians have a, have a right, like any people, to say that they'd like a state. Now, whether, not, whether they're going to get one or not is a good question, mm. but... They have a perfectly legitimate reason uh, or desire to say that they'd like to govern themselves. Sure. So I think when the right-wing people say, but what, I don't understand, why can't they just live as second-class citizens? Within my, it's like, yeah, okay, but why don't you do that? Oh, I don't want to do it. Okay, so then they don't want to do it either. And that's why I'm always <laughs> sympathetic. Um, that's why you know I, I find myself an outcast in a lot of my circles because I'm sympathetic to that because it's just like we want to stay, they want to stay. Okay, I get it. You know. Right, so how can you... The problem is how can you get to that a point that even begins to work? Because mm. I think that... The Palestinians were on the road to statehood in the 90s, ostensibly, um, much like in lots of other peoples, um, because the 90s was an interesting era when the Cold War had ended. Right. The there was an idea up. that suddenly all the conflicts in the world could be solved because there was a U.S. global hegemony. There was a liberal international world order. And, then all, and so all of a sudden, all the weird conflicts that had existed primarily due to the Cold War, fueling them, all of a sudden resistance groups had no address to get secret guns from. There wasn't going to be any uh, the jackal or whatever running around right. with Soviet support. All of a sudden, all these, you know, names then. things like they call e- us the jackals, East Timor could be solved. And by the way, East Timor was totally a bloody horrible massacre until they got a state and East Timor now is a country that exists. It may not be a very successful country, but it exists. South Sudan became a country uh, also out of terror and blood. Sure. Primarily because of a 1990s vision. Um, so lots of things were solved in the 1990s, but we're now seeing um, 
you know, irredentism or whatever, return to that conflict. Because look what happened in Azerbaijan and Armenia. Mm. That conflict was a simmering um, ceasefire. And when Azerbaijan got strong enough, backed by Turkey, they just rewrote the rules in the last, in the, over the last year. And said, well, no, we're just going to take it back. And they did. So I think that we're, and by the way, what did Russia do with Crimea? They just, just rolled, about they that. were just like, you know what, actually Crimea is ours. <laughs> what do you, it's not. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Okay, I just took this from you. Let's see. And they're not going to do much. <laughs> yeah. And then you had the Donbass, right? I've been, I was actually in the front lines in the Donbass. I mean, you know, the Russians just went in there and, and created a little uh, two separatist uh, kind of fake countries. I mean, South Ossetia is, a, is also a Russian thing, right? Abkhazia is another one. I mean, th there are a number of little Russian countries who are like all the cups on the table. Yeah. That Transnistria, oh, it's, it's a huge number of things. So I think that we look at the... I, I have a cheap brandy from Transnistria. <laughs> No, but it's good. It's not bad. <laughs> I feel sorry for those places because they're not recognized by the international community. Russia's not going to go anywhere. Um, it's a bit like Northern Cyprus. Northern Cyprus is not going right. to be recognized as a country. Um, but it functions kind of like one. The Turks say, well, let's have a two-state solution. Um, it's interesting. The Turks, of course, can, can kind of illegally occupy that. And, right. Uh, but all the, they don't like it when we do it. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. But I think, yeah, look, Israel, there needs to be um, a post-1990s discussion of saying, okay. Let's so what does that look like? Well, I think it, it do, unfortunately, it Let's does, it, unfortunately, right it, unfortunately, it looks like might makes right in authoritarianism. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, we're not talking about a new international world order being created now. We're, the world order being created in the last 10 years is one in which authoritarian regimes impose their will on others. So that's why Turkey, for instance, has taken over northern Syria and just been like, whatever, it's ours now. I mean, yeah. what are you do? and no one even cares. No one even talks about Turkey's illegal occupation of Afrin. It just was, oh, oh the Turks are there? Okay. Um, so look, I think yeah, that unfortunately China behaves in that way. Also, Russia India, behaves in that way. India, by the way, India ripped up the the some of the autonomy of Kashmir. Also, I think. Um, oh, right, there were there was some repealing you, of autonomy of Kashmir. So there's all sorts of examples where countries have just thrown out the rule book and been yeah. like, remember what happened in Sri Lanka where they used to have the Tamil tigers over? It was, right. That's an unsolvable conflict. And then one day, Sri Lanka was like, no, it's not. We're just going to get rid of it. And, and they did. It took them a very quick campaign. They got rid of the Tamil Tigers. I mean, that stopped. All that terrorism stopped. We used to talk about like terrorism. Because remember, they used to say suicide terrorism. and say, it's not only Islamists. There's suicide terrorism in Sri Lanka. No, there's not. It's gone. It's finished. So I think that what's happening is that powerful countries are rewriting the world order. And I think that Israel is, is in a way, you know, Trying if to, you did one yeah. of the, a, map, a, a plot map of powerful countries, Israel is very powerful. But it's not China, Russia, Turkey. Sure. Um, it's powerful regionally. It's not powerful internationally. Right. So the degree to which Israel is able to impose its will on the Palestinians, I mean, there's no question of the fact of asymmetry of that, right? I mean, yeah. Palestinians have, I think in some ways, or at least the Palestinian Authority, has never been weaker in terms of what it, it doesn't have weapons and stuff. Um, but uh, I mean, Hamas has a lot of missiles and stuff, but not much else. I mean, yeah. there is an asymmetry there. Israel can impose its will. Israel doesn't want to take over these areas, but it also doesn't want to leave. So it's in a it's a catch twenty two. I mean, yeah, yeah. And you could say, yeah, okay. So that's what Russia is doing in the Caucasus. I mean, Russia is involved with South Ossetia, but doesn't want to leave. I mean, so that, that's why when I look at now when we bring in this in the context of the Abraham Accords, from the kind of Netanyahu, the Israeli, you know what? I'm a, I'll, I'll call it the Israeli right might makes right. Right. Camp, the Israeli kind of nationalist, uh, and this is a new paradigm. And what what they're trying to this is my interpretation of what they're trying to do is, is just keep plodding along, not really ever solve it, not really ever not solve it, until kind of the, the region just gets used to things, you know. 
Well, that was the narrative that everyone was saying up until this last war, kind of, which was like, you know what? The Israel-Palestinian conflict is over, not because it's over, but no one cares about it. Because no one cares, right. And that's the the argument you could, by the way, use about South Ossetia. The Georgian war is over, not because the Georgians care about it, but nobody else does. Right. And so that's why it's over. And the big fat Russian bear is just sitting on South Ossetia and says, you're not going to take it back. So, But that I think that Israeli narrative was heavily challenged, Mm. and I think that's why I argued before that Israel fell into this conflict in Gaza thinking they were falling into a multi-day conflict like 2019 in Gaza without understanding that actually the whole world order was about to change and there was a big narrative push and Israel may have may have may have stumbled into something by mistake in Gaza and not understood that by doing that rather than waiting a few days and just not doing anything because Israel's a powerful country you can just do nothing it stumbled into bringing back that question and you see yeah. how everyone everyone in the west was like you see the Palestinian questions is back and i think that's where Israel may have miscalculated because if you're of the camp that says it's in Israel's interest to have no one talk about this conflict because Israel is winning and therefore we should just keep winning, every time there's a conflict, and Hamas openly says this, we're going to raise the flag again. And not only that, all the riots in Israeli cities, they, that was, they saw that as a huge win. It was like, a huge win. They're for like, we are not, we're not only in the West Bank and the Jerusalem again, we're in the heart of Israel. That's what we've always wanted. We're back. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. most of those people rioting in Lod were not carrying Hamas flags. I mean... There is an existing problem in Israel of sectarianism and and youth and post-COVID anger and, you know, young people want to fight. And th- there is a problem in Israel. But, I mean, sure. most of the clashes, I don't think, were, were Hamas uh, cells popping up. I mean, they're just angry young men, and they fought, and they lynched, and then it was over, sort of. So I think that... But anyway, th- for propaganda-wise, they think it's great. And it was. Does the calculus at all uh, become impacted by the, by the new government that may... Uh, yeah, I mean, I would assume that the editors was, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, I'm not, I, I would say that, I uh, have to do this, as I say this carefully. Um, you know, Netanyahu should should leave power in the sense that because people shouldn't stay in power forever. Um, so it's good that Israel may, may, may have a changed government here in the next few days, but Israel's adversaries I certainly will want to test that government. And... Israel's adversaries, well, I would say primarily are Turkey and Iran, whether it's the Brotherhood, the brotherhood in mm. Turkey and um, the other version of the Brotherhood in Iran. That's actually Israel's main adversaries of those two countries and, the, and their worldview around the region. They will look at the new government and say, this is a chaotic, complicated coalition. We can test these people. Sure, you have, you have a government in which you have, um, you do have right-wingers, you have centrists, you have the progressive left, and then you have an Islamist Arab party. Yes. I mean, look, in some ways it could, be, it could be a dream coalition because it does represent a huge swath of Israel. And you could, if it was in a vacuum, you could say, but this is a, a dream. I mean, Israel never had such a, uh, such a, yeah. such great unity together of all these interesting groups. But, uh, but uh, for Israel's enemies, they will see that unity as something that you, you want to test it. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, but the men who are in charge of this party, and I guess they are mostly men, it seems like. I saw that. Except for Mirav Michaeli. Yeah. Right, they're mostly men. They, they they are not stupid people. I mean, um, you know, Bennett is, a, Bennett is a very competent manager and uh, has done very uh, quite good job in the jobs he's done prior to this in government. Um, and I think, you know, Lapid is, uh, is a competent leader, and, and Gantz is, of course, as well. This is a, these are high-quality people, and including Mansour Abbas. Obviously, I think it's a is somehow a visionary in his own interesting weird way. So there's a lot of competent people coming into the administration. But I, but that being said, I just think that the Israel's enemies may, may want to see, okay, what are the, what will these people do? Will they overreact? I mean, 
Omer, I think, you know, was accused of overreacting probably in cast lead and not really bringing back much. Mm. Uh, I mean, you remember that with 2009, then we had two more wars right after that. Yep. In Gaza. Yep, yep. And you know, the, the, the fight, the war in 2006 in Lebanon was accused of being badly mishandled. Although it did apparently buy, you know, 14 years of peace. Yeah. Right. So yeah. we don't, in retrospect, it may, it may be a good thing. We just don't know. Who knows? Um, I was having a talk with a colleague yesterday about the Mansour Abbas. So for those who aren't familiar, Mansour Abbas heads the Israeli Ra'am party, the Shuta Aravit HaMeuchedet, the joint Arab list, not to be confused with the joint Arab list. Um, <laughs> but but it's, it's an Islamist uh, party that it's, it'll be the first time in Israeli history that an Arab party is part of a governing coalition. I'm not sure, because I heard a story that back in the days of labor supremacy in Israel, there were these like fake labor Arab parties that were constituent elements of the coalitions that were like run by Arabs, but they were like, but they were parties that like labor had created in Arab villages. Mm. To be, okay. to, I heard, I mean, that. I, so it may not be exactly the there first. There was also it, outside support during the Robin years. There was 100% that. So, but it, it does seem to be, whatever it is, it is unprecedented. It's, it's unprecedented. And, and the point that my colleague was making, uh, and I, I'm going to try to write about this before you get to it. <laughs> He's so already done it. He's, he he did it now. He, now that's he why he's on his phone. He's, he texted he's, himself an article and it's already published. Um, God, you're so fast. You're so fast. Like I sit down for like three days to trying to mull over an idea and you've like published five articles by then. Um, I, I envy it. I really envy it. It's such a, a cool thing to be able to do. Um, the, the, the point though here is that the, the interesting thing, if anyone's been following Mansour Abbas, is that he... When, when he made his kind of conciliatory post-election speech, he took out all aspects of Palestinian nationalism. Right. And it was completely focused on internal Israeli-Arab yeah. issues. And yeah. that's something new in the Israeli-Arab context. It's something new that, that I think, you know, the the Israeli-Jewish electorate, certainly the right-wing electorate, wasn't expecting. And and so the, the question that my colleague posited um, is, are we in... In Israeli politics, not regionally, uh, maybe religionally, are we in a post-Palestinian paradigm in Israeli politics and the participation of Israeli Arabs? I don't know about post, but we're, we are we're at a precipice or, or a crossroads in which it, it could happen, i.e., what you noted was that the, the joint list, the, the other one, the, the, the bigger joint list, yeah. Ayman Ode and Hadash, which is ostensibly a Jewish Arab party, in fact. In fact, it's ostensibly quite secular and quite liberal in many ways. Yeah. Which has hitched its horse to to Tal and um, and Balad, uh, right. Balad being a kind of Arab nationalist but ostensibly secular party, but a but right. a Nasserite type of party, and Tal or something, whatever. No, no, no idea what it is. I think it's more like Islamist, but it doesn't matter. But it's it's funny that you know when you look at those traditionally Israeli Arab politics seem to be more Palestinian than the Palestinian Authority. Like yeah. they would spend half the time going over there to, to the families of martyrs and shahids and stuff. And they would barely do anything in Israel. Like that's a perception. I remember, at least. Yeah. I remember I did a march once. I walked with Ayman Ode for three days when he first came to power. That's uh, a lot of walking. Yeah, it was actually it was the Bedouin Rights March. I'm, I walked with them, um, and it was a very good experience. But at the time, you know, he really did. He did appear to want to root himself in a new era of Israeli politics, and you know. He was like compared to Nelson Mandela and stuff. By the, you know, I had hopes for him at first. I, he I had, really did. Yeah, but he the problem is he is not, was not able, I think, to be himself because he was tied to other part constituent mm. parts of joint lists, which are 
fanatically anti-Israel, um, more anti-Israel, you know, than than maybe Iran or Turkey, some of them. So, so that's a strange. It's a strange multi-headed beast that he was part of, and I think that you saw that. You remember the night of the Jerusalem d- Day Parade when the Hamas had fired the rockets. Sure. Um, you know, he posted that inflammatory thing showing the Temple Mount on fire with people dancing with flags, yeah. as if that was as if they were connected, which they, they were. Connected, uh, right. That's very inflammatory, and I think you look at Mansour Abbas didn't do that. And Mansour Abbas... Not only that, Mansour Abbas came to Lod to visit a burnt synagogue. And that's that's what people should be doing, Jews and Arabs together, should be doing that. And I think you see the difference of one one group wanting to inflame the street and profiting off off this conflict somehow. And another one saying, no, I think... If I play a role in politics, I can bring home some bacon from my computer. Yeah. I guess we shouldn't play bacon; it's the Middle East. But Co- kosher bacon, right? So Land I bacon. just think, like, you but, know, but I was, I, in Dubai, you see bacon on every menu, but it's beef bacon. Yeah, well, it can be made of beef. I guess. I mean, it's just uh, just a name, right? Although the rabbin, you know, the rabbinut um, forbade yes. crave from calling it bacon. No, of course. Yeah, they don't. Well, they don't. <laughs> that, that's the whole. That's why when you go to the Jerusalem Zoo, they have these things that look like pigs. And oh they're yeah, like, they're they're like, that's not a pig, and, and it's in Yiddish. <laughs> yeah, it's not a pig. These are these <laughs> other things. What is it? They're tapers or something. Some tapir, stupid tapir, looking tapir, creature tapir. that looks pig-like but is not. A tapir is. Uh, I think it's in probably, the r- probably tastes like a pig too. No, I think it's in the. It's you don't want to eat it. <laughs> There's it also the those horrible rats, those capybaras. Capybaras. Like this By the way, I've always thought that'd be it's a the great, largest rodent. That would be a great prank if you lived somewhere to buy one of those things and just chuck it in someone's yard. <laughs> they wake up and they're like, "What the hell is this?" It's, it's not. For, for those who are not aware, you shrunk. A capybara is an Amazon jungle rodent yeah but it's like this big the size of a labrador retriever right and they're incredibly docile well, of course you know what they are they're like those funny creatures that live up in the golan those little fat things ah shafan just sit there all day and do this hyraxes yeah the, they're like that but i'm just saying <laughs> if you got up in the morning and saw a hyrax in your back you'd be like okay just go away but if you got up in the morning and there was a rat this big yeah. like, what the hell is a that? dog rat we're leaving <laughs> we're selling the house <laughs> we can't we can't stay here honey. not staying here anymore <laughs> well, are there more of those no <laughs> <laughs> they just chill. You see videos of them. They're just chilling. Ducks are like sitting on their heads. You know, like nobody cares. They don't care. Lizards are like crawling all over them. They're, they're chilling. So um, we were supposed to be talking about Monster Bus. I, I think that <laughs> I think that his look. His I, you know another thing about him. I think that's phenomenal. And I could be wrong, but I, the right wing would have dredged it up if it existed. The right wing would have found him saying something crazy in Arabic and say, "But that see, that's your partner. He's saying something crazy yeah. in Arabic in English or in Hebrew. He's very nice." But you see in Arabic, he says the opposite. Well, un- the way, unless he would have gone with them. But wait, we haven't, we haven't, they, that has not been dredged up in Israel, which means it probably doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, you know, with Arafat and others, they would always say, yeah, but in, in Arabic, he denies the show, or whatever. In, in, in English, he's very nice. Sure. Mansour Abbas apparently is the, the genuine article in the sense that what he is saying, whether or not you, he's accused of being an Islamist or whatever, and it's true they're anti LGBTQ rights, that, that's, that's on the record. But that's on the record in Hebrew. I mean, yeah, they're, 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 they're not just hiding like, it. listen, we're a conservative Muslim party. But in terms of the rhetoric, I mean, it's the exact kind of rhetoric people always said they wanted to see from from Arab parties in Israel. It's, um, it's fascinating. I think it's a good point you make that, you know, go find something secret that he says in Arabic. And, and I don't uh, think it exists. I think if it existed, they would have found it because yeah. the right wing of this country is, is, is right now They're looking in for, a huge, crazy yeah. crisis trying yeah. to destroy this government. Yeah. If they could find him saying something like jihad or whatever, they would that would be on every channel everywhere. The, who, but he's not. Because he, I think, he he in his favor just doesn't. I think he's not a. I don't. I mean, he's not a genius. I think kind of what you see, maybe what you get, and what you see is, and what you get is also, of course, it is a. He is from a conservative right wing yeah. tradition. I think, by the way, that that frightens, um, you know, the 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 extreme right in this country because. 
they would always tell you, yeah, the reason we don't like to want to work with the Arab parties is because they're like too crazy and pro Arab. It's like, yeah, but actually, let's. What if they weren't? You still wouldn't want to. You still wouldn't. Yeah, want to it kind of calls out racism because secretly the extreme right or far right or whatever in Israel is is viciously anti Arab and has become even worse in the yeah. last decade, to the degree to which you know. The, the accusations that Israel is is full of racism and all sorts of things. Unfortunately, among that group, there it's very bad, and and I think it is demographically perhaps getting worse. And the question is whether this coalition can drag the country a bit back into like, no, we can have coexistence, we can have. And by the way, all these people that sing the praises the Abraham Accords, but then are also like anti-Arab in Israel, very bad. It's weird. And the Abraham Accords should be used as an example of no, wait, we can all get along. Yeah. And, and people have to be careful because there are people on the far right in Israel that sang the praises of the Abraham Accords and it's totally inauthentic because they're not really, yes. they're not into Arabs and they're not into coexistence. And, but they could be, they could be dragged back into that. that. That's my hope is, is, um, you know, that's my hope with the Abraham Accords is that those, and look, I understand where it comes from. I don't think it's a racism that, it, it's a racism that comes out of seven decades plus of conflict. No, that's right, and that's and, and that's, that's why legitimate. I, there are of course legitimate fears of uh, yeah. um, of, of all sorts of things, you know, like. Uh, so my hope is my hope is is that all of these people will start seeing these Arabs from the Gulf, and then hopefully from Morocco and then from other places. Takes say, time. Oh, you know what? It takes time. You know what? You know the same. By the way, the same way they're looking at us. I, my my first trip out there, one of my one of my good friends who's a big fan of yours, by the way, um, in the Gulf, says to me, "Until two weeks ago, until a year ago." I thought Israelis were aliens, you know. I never met one, never talked to one, and now you're you're normal people, and now we can be friends. And it's, you know, it's like a normal is that's what normalization is, you know. That's what it leads. Well, to. unfortunately, with the peace deals with Egypt and Jordan, it did not lead to right. a, almost any. In fact, maybe zero people. The people stuff. There was years ago some work, you know, Jordan, Egypt, Israel stuff. But as far as I know, the, the number of academic things and stuff is almost zero. I mean, it's so bad, the people-to-people yeah. people stuff. And it's a shame because there could be more Jordan-Israel, there could be more Egypt-Israel stuff. Um, and maybe if there's a new government and a new chain, who knows, there could be. But I, I mean, certainly Jordan was very, very hostile to Netanyahu and vice versa. Sure. Well, yeah, he, and he, Egypt, he didn't help matters. As somebody who's in this a lot and, and, and works in this, do you do you see a day in our lifetimes where there's less racism in in Israeli society? Or are we just constantly kind of doomed to be in a place where where? No, I think Middle Israel is not so racist. I think that the average person. I mean, I know I know lots of uh, lots of um, you know Arabs from East Jerusalem that have gone to to work and, and study in Tel Aviv and as optometrists and other things. And I think there's a lot of a lot of actually coexistence in Israel um, without it needing to come under a paradigm of some coexistence group, where just people know each other. Of course, Israel is a very divided society, so most like Arabs and Jews don't have each other as friends, but they. I would say that there isn't. I think the average Israel is not not extremely racist. I think, though, unfortunately, there are ways of speaking um, on parts of the right and the populist right and the far right and the religious groups that are that are not that are very very bad. And unfortunately, it's on the other side as well because I think when we saw the riots in the mixed towns. You see the degree to which there is loathing and hatred of, of Jews among. Yeah. I think. I think. People, I, think so. I think it's it, it's that, but it's also. The way that people allow themselves to speak sure. when they're amongst other Jews, yes. where if we sub, you know, if we substituted the word black person for Arab, the way that the, you know the right. way the Arabs are talked about, and we happen to be located in the United States, it wouldn't be considered acceptable conversation. No, and but here I, you that's can true. But that's say, because, but that's because, in many ways, Israel is part of the of of the region, and in the end of the day, 
you know, if you go to Kurdistan, they speak in a certain way of, uh, about that is negatively about Arabs, and Turks talk badly about Kurds, and you know, we live in a region in which there's a lot of ethnic differences and religious uh, pettiness and hatreds and things that are just taken for granted in terms of the way people speak. It's not great. But Israel's not on the track of, uh, mm. of woke culture. It's not going to become... Look, in the Western experience, especially in America, you spend half your day policing your language. Uh, usually to an extent that is, is a bit ridiculous in the sense because you don't want to offend anyone. Yeah, um, No, Israel's obviously not like that. It's a country where, in which Where does you that come from, the woke culture? Look, some of it was a legitimate attempt to stop offending people. I mean, to stop having um, comedy shows where they, where they would depict Asians with slanty eyes as, as, as a joke. I mean, in Israel, you know, we still have comedy shows where they use blackface for, to depict Ethiopians. By the way, there's no shortage of Ethiopian comedians you right. could have. They purposely choose a guy like me and like, we'll put on blackface. That is offensive. I mean, because we wouldn't want to do it, we wouldn't do it the other way. So I think that, I mean, we wouldn't have an Ethiopian guy wear white-faced and mock white people. So I think that... They should. There, there's a, there Dave Chappelle used to do it. There's a good... There, some of what became the woke culture and stuff, I think, started from a positive thing, which is, no, we shouldn't... Uh, you know, we should be careful the assumptions we make, you know, about like, uh, oh, you eat ethnic food. And wait, what do you eat ethnic food? Like, oh, because white man's food is just like what norm That's is. That's normative, right? But, oh, yeah. you eat... Oh, you, you like ethnic things. What, what do you mean? And the question of cultural appropriation is, the question is, when does it go too far? It's like, right. wait, I want to, why can't I wear, you know, braids? Oh, no, that's because that could be cultural appropriation. What? I mean, there's things that are like totally nonsensical. No. You as a white man must not eat sushi, must not make sushi. It's like, what do you mean? I want to, I want to, why can't I try that? I yeah, mean, Rick, Rick Bayless can't make Mexican food anymore. Right. I think then there's a question is when it goes way too far, but I think that the beginning, the seeds of trying to be, you know, um, you know, less less offensive, and and these, and the question of what um, what assumptions you make in your mind and the things you say, I think that um, that's very important, and I think we could use a lot more of that. And but I think that what happened in the, especially America, which tends to take things to an extreme, usually, yeah, um, it just like took masks to an extreme, like no other Western country did what America did with masks. Like, you must wear a mask. I will not wear a mask. Yeah. Guys, not going to wear your mask. Just relax. If you want to wear it, wear it. Yeah, don't. It's okay. It's okay. It became this huge thing. Like a, a people that like were like, no, I know masks are good, but I won't wear it for principle. It's like, what? That doesn't my, make sense. And then another, yeah. I'm putting on three masks. Yeah, the people that are like, no, there were people that were like, that, like, I have to put on two because if I don't put on two, other people might not think masks work. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So I think that America takes things to a crazy degree. We see that with, with the virtue signaling and, and woke <laughs> stuff where it's like, um, you know, you, you hear these stories in, in colleges, I can't even remember all of them, but you hear some, you know, these crazy stories about people being, being thrown out for racism and you're like, well, what are they going to do? You're like, wait, wait, I don't understand. He talked about another, th he talked about Tom Sawyer and used the word from the book and it's like, yeah, but he's not racist. He was just repeating what he read in class. You know? There are stories like that and you're like, yeah. that doesn't, that sounds totally insane. So I think that we do, of course, Israel. Israel's not on that track anyway. But I think no, that quite the opposite. I th you know, America. America is in a strange place, and I think that you know most of America doesn't agree with the, that policing of language. And you see that when you see the degree to which people do kind of dafka the opposite. They're, you know, they always say to America, "Oh, it's this, you're going to be straight talk," or you know, he's keeping it real or whatever, which is code for like, yeah, but he just doesn't give it. He's not going to do PC bullshit. They and canceled. Then, they canceled Mr. Potato Head. Why? Yeah. See that? They didn't want to offend potatoes? Why? No, because why would a potato have a gender? Well, you might make it a mister. Can't be a mister. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I just... So, West, you know, the West is on a track that is... Do you think the West is in decline? Well, it, it, it appears to be in decline. I mean, certainly, let's say... Let's say the non-West is rising rapidly. 
and the West is not rising. It's just sitting there. It's so, stagnant. Right. I mean, so it doesn't produce great thinkers anymore. It doesn't seem to pr- produce a particularly, um, you know, let's say energetic society uh, in terms of ideas and things. It's, um, it's not reproducing physically. It's not. Yeah. So demog- demograph- demog- demog- demography. Demog- demographic. Demographically. Demography is has certainly stagnated. I mean, look, I mean, the irony of the whole demographic question is interesting because the West was the West was just told for years. It's sort of like how things were like misleading about COVID in the beginning. The West was just told, no, no, you should have like one kid because there are too many children. There's too many children. But then yeah. the same people saying that when the rest of the world was having like four or five or ten was like, no, 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 that's good when they're doing it. It's like, yeah, okay, this doesn't work. Yeah. If you really believe in like overpopulation, then the whole world should have a pact in which they all have less kids. But that's not what happens. You, you yeah. can't. You can't say like, okay. Well, China did. You know, you can only have this much coffee, but I'll have a huge well, I, amount of coffee. I think there was a pact in China. <laughs> I don't think that that's what happened. Right, but no, but in look, the Chinese I, context, that's a pact. I just think that. So I think that you can't. I mean, we see that argument in Israel sometimes. It's like, well, the, you know, Israel has too many children. It's like, no, it doesn't. If it's, by the way, if you have, if they have lots of kids in Israel, they can just go. They can just migrate abroad. What's wrong? We can have Jewish migration back back to Europe. It's okay. I mean. People can go back to Iraq. It's People are doing it. So I don't, I don't buy the whole thing about like you know you you should have less kids, but you you're different, so you can just as many as you want. That doesn't work like that. So I think that the West was in a sense tricked into having less children, but also I think Westerners' quality of life was like such that like wait, I don't want children. Yeah, it, comes, it comes from a place. Ch- of, children you know, are a disaster. Right, children are annoying. They're expensive. You can't take your boat out and have fun all the time. You got to deal with these kids. So I think that it happened in Europe. Part of the West is yeah. because the West became a, not a me too culture, but a me 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 culture. Sure, and like, the individualist culture. Sure, it's all about uh, you, you can't have kids hedonism. because you want to have fun, and, and then, so that's that's also a part of what happened to the breakdown of the, the tradition and religion and all those sorts of things. So it's a long, complicated process. But I think we're talking 100 years of decline of, of, of demo- demography in, in the West. So whether or not the West itself is declining, I just think that we're just seeing rapid rise of, of China and, and other countries. And I think that the that moment that moment in the 90s of like U.S. global hegemony the, the is problem rapidly eroding. You know, the people still are connected to American culture. Pop, American pop culture is yeah. still the dominant thing. Oh, yeah. These TV Music, shows. Rap. You don't you don't see people watching Chinese television around no, no. the world. Or I don't even, think China even tr- I don't think know. China even tries to be a cultural exporter, I think. So, so, you know, so the question is is you know, we we kind of talked about this at the beginning is that you know, p- people people attack the West and criticize the West. And there's certainly, you know, a lot to criticize, but at the end of the day, the West put forward um, a vision it put to ideas thoughts right we talked about earlier the concept of human rights the concept of individual liberties property rights all of these things are inventions of the west um can't believe property rights. individualism pro- property rights can't be i everyone, think so everyone loves property no 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 in the Middle East, man, people love property. People, <laughs> people care far more about property, by the way, here <laughs> than in the West. Oh, the yeah. West created communism. Intellectual the property The West rights. created communism, not the Middle East. Intellectual people property People love property. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the houses in Dubai? They love property. They really do. Have you been to Iraq? They uh, love it. <laughs> I haven't been to, I'd love to go to Iraq. Go to the Palestinian Authority, by the way. You want to see what property looks like? You live here in the, in the middle of Israel, right? In the, but... Go over to the West Bank. Big houses. Everything, by the way, is different. Every house is different. What's that in guy's Israel, name? In, the same. What's the guy's name in Nablus that has that massive? Ah, that's the Masris, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's a he's an aberration of of, of, of total totally out there. But I mean, I'm just saying, drive around the West Bank, and, okay. you, and you be jealous. So, so I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. They it's didn't fine. invent property rights, but there it's are certain. But, but there are a lot of things here. that were invented. It's certainly, individualism, I think, is a is a creation yes. of, of the West. I think it's, uh, and there's a lot of good things about that. And and 
you know, you talk about the rise of the rest, you know, you read like Fareed Zakari and all these people talk about the rise of the rest and, and India and China and other, you know, Russia, um, who's not rising, but certainly well, challenging it, the it world. It declined and came back. It declined and came back. But my, my, the point I'm trying to get to here, though, is they don't provide a vision. They don't provide a framework. They don't provide cultural or intellectual products that the world wants to consume. No, but wait, but they do regionally. Uh, I don't know about Russia, but Turkey, for instance, mm. does produce all sorts of exports and now mosques and, and Muslim Brotherhood stuff that goes to Europe, goes all around the world. And, and, and of course, the Ramadan shows, yeah. That's what I mean, there is there is a cultural export a bit. I mean, it's, it's a slow process, but mm. you're right. I mean, because secretly lots of the world wanted to be part of the West. I think the West, by the way, is at fault for letting down a lot of places. I mean, mm. we know that with the Kurdish experience, I mean... Agree, which the, the West seemed to have let them down, um, and not you know. But and I was reading recently a commentary in Iran about Central Asia, about how how Iran and China and Russia are going to sponge up America's assets in Afghanistan and Central Asia, and the article openly says we felt that Trump was very bizarre for just totally wanting to abandon everything. We didn't. We were surprised to see Americans leave, yeah. but if they're leaving, we're going to come in. <laughs> they're very open about what they're doing, and they know they know they're going to prey on these countries that many countries that kind of wanted America as the big brother in the neighborhood to keep these other sure. pieces out. Yeah. Something that's often overlooked, yeah. So listen, man, I want to I wanna start wrapping up, but uh, I have to say, one of the things that I like following you online for is uh, Shea Fransman. Uh, food. The food. Yeah. You well, are... Transition to that, that next, I think. Just yeah. do food. Yeah. I, think, I think that, first off, if you don't have a food blog or an Instagram, you definitely should. You're, you're like... you. I like cooking. You're hardcore. I like good cooking, but I mean, uh, yeah, I do love it, especially Asian food and uh, Italian. Uh, I try to do these big meat meat cuisines. You know, I bought I, a really I nice saw. this big Dutch oven. So I can do huge. I like the idea of doing big meat um, stews, uh, but then the problem is I don't know. I don't. I don't have enough people to eat them with. So <laughs> like, my wife will have like one little piece, and she'll be like, "Oh, it's really good," and she'll be like, "That's that's." Cool. Like, what do I do with this? Yeah, we're, we're, Benny and I are very much into food and cooking. And, I'll bring yeah, it over here next. Do you, do you plan out menu? Like, are you like those are not. I just got up this morning and decided that I want to make a giant rack of lamb with... I usually like, try to do a big thing for Shabbat, and then some, usually I do try to do a big, you know, several hundred shekels of meat for, for some sort of thing. Just And I like to experiment a bit. I mean, I got into making sushi during the COVID uh, lockdowns because I found that the delivery sushi was absolutely disgusting in good. Jerusalem. I mean, I felt that the sushi I was getting had been, like, made by a guy and then put in a washing machine and then <laughs> hit with a mop and then brought to my house. And I was, like, eating it. I was, like, this is tasteless. It's not like, fresh. I was, like, it's I'll never yet. eat this again. And I was like, I will get every ingredient and learn how to do all this. So we, um, sushi or chabi, those, uh, it used to be good. Is it not good anymore? I, I mean, like, I'm, I don't want to slander anybody. I think it's not, I don't think it's as good as it was. But you know, they have a few branches. So the one. I just think sushi in Jerusalem is horrid. I think that sushi in Tel Aviv, there's a few places that yeah. are very good. If you keep kosher, I guess you can't go to Moon or whatever. But some of them are Moon's really, good. really high quality. Um, you know. I just, that's a fact. Found a good one here in Nestiona, which delivers mm. to here and that we've been ordering from a lot. Like it's not cheap, but it's good sushi. I think the problem with Israeli sushi is just in a matter of its options. Like you, you seem to, like, when you're, yes. when you're abroad, you have a menu of, and you yes. go, you had sushi recently. In, oh my in God. Dubai. I you went have, to like one of the best sushi places in all of Dubai. You, you literally have 50 it's different sick. types of fish that are, that are being kept and, and, and the art of sushi is so much an art yeah. of rice, but it's also the art of, you know, the fish practice. And, and here it's like you have salmon. That's it. Tuna, tuna and some white thing that nobody knows what it is, and it's like, well, what kind of tuna? 
We don't know tuna. And the salmon ten ten generally seems to not be very fresh. It's not sushi great. Because they're bringing it from. I have no idea what's going on to it, but it's not. It's not good. What's happening to the salmon? I've now gotten into. I like sushi as a snack, but it's it's like nutrition wise, it's it just all the proportions are off for me. Um, but I got into poke, and oh, the bowls, the bowls, and and a place just opened up in Rehovo that now delivers, and I'm like I'm loving this. I get it like at least once a week, and it's it's got like perfect balance of nutrition. It's got way more fish. It's got tons of vegetables. I'm like this Good. is perfect. Um, there's, there's places in Tel Aviv if you're there. I don't know what's going on in the Jerusalem poke scene. There used to be a place in the Shuk that was fine, and then I think it disappeared during COVID. I don't know, whatever, but we'll see. Where could people follow you if they want to uh, see what's going on? Well, they can do the uh, Seth Fransman on Twitter. I think it's at, at S. Fransman. There's only, like, one of me, so. There's nobody else named Fransman anywhere in the world, basically. So, like, and I think on Facebook you can find me and you can follow me or whatever. I mean, uh, please don't friend me. I, I can't accept more friend requests, really. But you can follow me or go to the, I have, like, two pages on Facebook. One's, like, a professional page. I, you can follow that, whatever. I mean, I have the Drone Wars book is on there. It's well. coming out. Make sure uh, to order it. And if and, and do you, you do Zoom lectures? You do in person lectures? I guess we'll start once that. Yeah, I mean here and there. I mean I try to. Just you should. Um, by the way, didn't maybe should ask you at the beginning. How do uh, <laughs> you're from Maine, right? Yes. Who's who's from Maine? Are there Jews in Maine? There are apparently a few. I'm, when I left, there was there you was left. five, and then there's four. No, I'm just. Kidding. <laughs> I mean, I was not part of a Jewish community in Maine anyway. I mean, neither were my parents, but. Um, but there are Jews, certainly in Portland, because the managing editor of the Jerusalem Post is also from Maine. Oh, yeah? So, yeah. Oh. There's a few of them out there. I think that um, my f- my dad moved to Maine with my mom in the 70s to open a sporting camp in the woods. When I was a kid, we didn't have electricity. Um, no kidding. Yeah. we had. Uh, it was pretty crazy. We lived totally in the middle of nowhere. We, we had a camp, so you could go li- stay in our cabins or at room or whatever. But in the winter, you'd have to ski in or fly in with a plane. They'd ju- dump oh, you shit. off on a lake. And then in the That's summer, awesome. it was... Uh, I mean, it was so it was fine. It was it was an interesting way to grow up. No, so you no, grew up backwards, no totally backwards, like Abe Lincoln or something. And I lived there until I was seven. Then we moved to the coast of Maine, Connecticut, back to the coast of Maine. And then when I was like fourteen, I went to school in Arizona. So, but um, yeah, yeah, you've Maine. you've got you've got the hands of someone who's uh, who, who knows how to handle an axe and chop a few uh, trees for firewood. <laughs> no, sometimes I miss it. I wish I could go back. I, I love mean, it. Israel's a really is an interesting state, of course. I think a wonderful place to live in some ways. I mean. It has all sorts of positives in terms of raising children and things, I think. But but sometimes, especially when you have to deal with things like COVID, you're like, you know what, man? I would like to have a cabin in the middle of nowhere yep, in yeah. Maine. And, and you know? I don't want to be and bothered by people and no one to tell me what yeah, to do. I could just chop wood and, like, hunt or whatever, or fish, and, like, do nothing all day. And, like, and there won't be any COVID because I'm in a cabin. Because you're alone. But then you wonder so, if you end up, like, Ted Kaczynski. So did you grow up hunting? <laughs> no, we didn't hunt. We had uh, we had a few uh, shotguns around because we had problems with um Raccoon, raccoons eating the chickens, no. so but um we uh, no we weren't into hunting. But my grandpa was into uh, into hunting, and then and in Maine people do hunt. Deer. Sure, they hunt deer. We used to have a we had a bear problem once. We had to have it trapped and taken away. But but no, my parents were not into um, into that at all. I mean, and and most Jews I guess are not into hunting in general. But fishing, fishing for sure. Fishing. No, I mean I mean Maine is is really backcountry. But Benny's from Minnesota, and I'm from Indiana, and so. I definitely, like to, I definitely knew a lot of hunters growing no, up. No, I'd like to learn how to do that. I'd like that's why I'd like to go back one day and have a have a place there and do go, go get back into outdoorsy stuff. Because when you're a kid, you don't appreciate it because it's just kind of what's it's just obvious it sure. exists. It's only later in life when you're an adult that you say, "Wait, wait, I want to do that." When you're a kid, you're like, "Oh, I'm forced to do it, so I don't want to do it." I'd love to learn how to like live in the backwoods. I got a friend in Minnesota who's he's Jewish and he's also very into hunting and outdoors. And Problem is, is, is that you can't have kosher meat from hunting. It's a problem for you. I said. 
problem for me. <laughs> problem for and me. many other people. If you want to keep kosher, show. it's a problem. Uh, yeah. Unless, I guess, you trap the animal and then bring in a shochet. <laughs> it's not a very efficient way to hunt. No. Use a bolo. <laughs> I don't know what, what you would do. Um, fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for dropping by. I'm glad we Appreciate finally got it. to do this. I'd love to have you back on the show. Um, if you want to do a zoom in on the book, uh, happy to give it a plug here on the show when it comes out. And uh, is it available for pre-sale on Amazon or anywhere we oh can yeah, we can plug it? it. Go okay. get it right now. So we'll put a link in the show notes. We'll people do it. It'll be on Kindle, and you can there where the guy will read it to you. You can do the audio book. It's like Morgan Freeman reading it or something. Morgan Morgan Freeman <laughs> drone wars in the 21st century. That's, That's Morgan, Morgan Freeman, Freeman British now. No, I didn't do a British. I did Morgan Freeman. You did. It's totally British. Oh, come on. Morgan Freeman. I want, I want to hear Seth read it with his, you know, lobster roll, you know, main accent. You know? <laughs> but uh, thanks so much for joining us on the show. And uh, we will see you all here next time. Next time. I'm Juanced. Take care, everybody. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.